Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to a grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good Monday morning, folks, and welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 11. We had an interesting weekend with cryptocurrency, so what's going to be our lead story? I got a ton of questions about what went on with Bitcoin pricing over the holiday. First off, Miyagi Mornings recap, episode 2, the podcast version. Post went out Saturday morning like it's supposed to. There was no podcasts in the feed because I screwed it up and didn't attach the freaking file. So sorry about that, guys. But it should be available now if you prefer to uh, indulge in the whole week in podcast format. Uh, I won't make that mistake again. Usually once I make a mistake, it sticks in my head. Hey, dummy, you did that once. Don't do it again. All right, so let's talk about crypto. And I know I just finished up last week with crypto talking about LBC coin. And if this hadn't gone on, I would have done something else today. But we need to talk about this. So Bitcoin price was surging toward twenty grand. And then, over the holiday uh, break, boom, it dropped down to like 16-something, maybe even hitting the 15s for a couple seconds. And then all of a sudden, you you know, you kind of get up on Sunday morning, and it's back over 18, and this morning it's over 19,000 bucks. What happened, and does it really matter? So the CEO of Coinbase came out and said, hey, the orange man is going to do something really, really evil. And if he does it, it is kind of evil, uh, though I'm going to tell you why it doesn't mean as much as people think. And I, of course, criticized the orange man on Parler, which got me attacked by all the Trump tards. Because if you say anything bad about their guy, you must be a liberal idiot. You don't know who you're talking to, but that's fine. So basically what the CEO said is there's a rumor anyway the orange man is going to ram through very onerous uh, KYC requirements for where Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies go when they leave centralized exchanges and are withdrawn to what's known is a non-custodial wallet. What is a non-custodial wallet? The Jack's wallet, the Coinami wallet, the Trezor wallet, like all the wallets out there where you hold your own keys instead of sitting on an exchange like Coinbase. So basically what they're saying is, let's say Jack had, I don't know, $1,000 worth of Bitcoin sitting in Coinbase. So he decides, I don't want that crap there anymore. I want it over on my Jax, J-A-X. It's not my wallet, Jack's wallet, but Jax, Jax.io, J-A-X-X.io, or Coinami or wherever. So I say, Coinbase, please transfer this Bitcoin to this address. Right now, I have done all the KYC requirements for Coinbase, and that means I can do stuff on Coinbase, and they know who I am, and I can transfer money from my bank and to my bank and all that stuff. right? So I've complied with all those regulatory and KYC requirements, KYC being know your customer. So if I send the money from Coinbase to my bank in the form of dollars, because I convert my Bitcoin to USD and send it over there, everybody knows and everybody's happy. But what if I'm sending it to my Jack's wallet? Well, how do you know who owns that address? You don't. So what this rumor is, this new regulation would require somehow for Coinbase to say, hey, Jack, before you can go to the Jack's wallet, you have to confirm that you actually own and control that address, or you have to show us who does. So you're not, I don't know, buying a kilo of cocaine for a thousand bucks, if you can do that. I don't think you can, but I'm not real schooled on cocaine prices. I I think I've just shown my ignorance on that. So anyway, they want to know who it's going to. So somehow, some way, you'd have to prove who owns that address. Okay, I do. How would you prove it? I don't know, but it could be something like they do with bank accounts, where Coinbase will make an undisclosed deposit in Bitcoin or whatever uh, 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 currency. They might even draw it from your address without letting you see it, so it doesn't cost them any money, and put in, you know, the equivalent of 37 cents in Bitcoin into that address. And then you would say to Coinbase, all right, I can tell you how much money went there. Does that prove it's mine? No, it just proves I can find out how much money went there. But let's say they come up with some magical way that they can say, Jack Spirico owns this Bitcoin address. We know, we verified it's his. Okay. And that's on my non-custodial wallet. Jack's, Coinami, Trezor, whatever. So I send my Bitcoin over there. 
And then it's not a non-custodial wallet. You see where this goes. So I don't want it sitting somewhere where it's been verified where it is, so I just send it to another address that I also control, or I send it to Steve for my cocaine or whatever. Now you have no idea where it went again. See, they already know your side of the transaction. That's why this went boom, bang. It was like a quick bounce back up in pricing because it doesn't really do anything. You already know who I am. What would be the most logical answer you'd want them to think anyway as to where the money went when you took it off Coinbase or whatever? Well, to yourself. You just wanted to hold it somewhere else. Why? There's no tax, con- con- you know, uh, tax con- consequences there. And you haven't purchased anything, and there's been no transactional relationship. You've just changed the holding bucket, which requires you to do absolutely nothing. So all they do by verifying where it goes, if they even figured out how they would ever enforce this, is, well, find out that you sent your money to yourself. And I don't think that the orange man has time to do this crap right now. Now, Biden might, going down the road, this is an impediment to one major thing, the movement of U.S. dollars into cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency into U.S. dollars, because most of us, almost all of us, would use a centralized exchange like a Coinbase or a Bittrex or something like that that does know your customer regulations to be able to transfer from U.S. currency or any other currency to this form of crypto and or back. But if you're going to stay in crypto... It's just another step. It's Maybe it's another transaction fee, but there's billions and billions and billions of dollars in Bitcoin right now. It's not sitting on exchanges. No one with a brain holds their crypto on an exchange. If I need to buy some crypto, and let's say I decide I'm going to buy it with dollars. Let's say I'm going to go to Coinbase and I'm going to up my Bitcoin holdings with dollars. So I go to my bank account, send a 1000 bucks in my own money over to my Coinbase account, buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin as soon as the transaction actually freaking clears. The second... That that Bitcoin's available in my Coinbase account. Do you know where it goes? Off Coinbase. I don't hold jack scrap in a centralized exchange. And the future of cryptocurrency is two things, mark my words. Decentralized exchanges, which you cannot control or regulate. It's impossible. With no KYC whatsoever. They may have security precautions in case, in place to keep people from stealing your money by hacking your account, getting in there and sending the money to themselves, like you know, some sort of email verification or text verification or third-party authentication. That's for your protection. But you can't stop that. How are you going to stop it? Well, they'll shut down the website. They won't even exist on websites soon. They'll exist on distributed architecture themselves. They'll exist as pieces of software and applications. We already have some that do. So the history is decentralized exchange, the other, or the, the future is de- decentralized exchange, and the other future is privacy coins. Bitcoin will remain, in my opinion, for a long time to come, the reserve of cryptocurrency. And the more they tighten down on U.S. dollars so we can't get into cash, and we have to use things like Tether or whatever, the more that will become the case with Bitcoin. People won't really worry, well, how many dollars do I get for this much Litecoin. How much Bitcoin do I get? Professional traders are already doing that. It's been, been doing for a long time. Most exchanges you look, your technical analysis is done generally against BTC, not USD. You can look at it the other way. But that's really what people want to know right now that are pro traders. I'm not a pro trader. And I'm not big on speculation. But I've been saying for a long time, since Bitcoin was 14 bucks, you should have some cryptocurrency in your portfolio. Some of y'all did that. You guys really like me a lot, don't you? I bet, yeah, you do. You do. Um, R is my favorite privacy coin right now because it's low-priced, it works stellar, and there is no way, no way anybody's cracking that privacy code. It's just not happening. And if you had bought some R back when I first had Draith Kata from the Pirate Chain Project on TSP, right now you would have made about 104% on your money. Now, that may go up or down today, but it's not a bad return, is it? So... Don't get don't get frightened by this because the last thing I want to say on this one, I'm going to go a little bit long on this one because this one's important. So the CEO of Coinbase comes out, leaks this little rumor, the price drops almost three thousand bucks and rebounds almost instantly. Can you see how Coinbase might make out pretty good on that? See, the one thing about cryptocurrency, it's not a stock or a, a future or a commo- or a, there are futures on Bitcoin, but it's not a publicly traded thing. 
there's nothing that prevents legally the CEO of Coinbase from coming out and exaggerating that a little bit if it might advantage him or his buddies. Just saying. I'm not saying it happened. I'm just saying, you know, if someone can make money and not face any consequences for doing something, they might do it. Not they will do it, but they might do it. So unlike a CEO of a major corporation that came out and exaggerated a rumor, Elon Musk, about their company that would drive up or down their stock price to create opportunities, who could get in trouble with the FTC, the CEO of Coinbase saying, hey, Trump might do this thing. No consequences whatsoever. And uh, you know how Coinbase makes their money? They don't make it on the price of Bitcoin. They make it on the volume of trading. So what happens when it drops really and goes back up? Lots of trading happens. Just saying. And if you knew that was going to happen and you were the one controlling the trades, you see what I'm saying? That might just be what went on there. I'm not really sure. But even if they do what was threatened to be done, you can't stop crypto that way. Sorry. If that was if it was that easy, they'd have done that shit 10 years ago. With that, hope you enjoyed today's episode of Miyagi Mornings. Promise no more cryptocurrency content this week in Miyagi Mornings. We'll go on to other things, and we'll get back to our seven- to eight-minute timeline. But this one, I just got so much on it, I wanted to make sure I covered it well. If you have more questions about this particular issue, email them to me, jack at survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. And instead of bringing them back to Miyagi Mornings, I will put them on the podcast maybe later this week, because this is a big subject. Take care, guys. Catch you tomorrow with another edition. Well, greetings all. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 12. And uh, today we're going to talk about something very practical and I think something uh, that will become more and more necessary over time if we are to see to our own health. And uh, based on the uh, the sickness and illness industry, there is no healthcare industry in this country. We have a sickness and illness industry in this company country because how do you make money? You don't make money on keeping people well. You make money on treating the sick. That's why we have that. And there's a lot of things you can do with supplements and things like that, vitamins, just general diet. If you're not keto or something close to it, or at least paleo, you probably should be, and that'll get rid of like, oh, 70% of our lifestyle illnesses in one fell swoop right there. But things happen. We cut ourselves, we ache, we work hard, and we feel tired or we're restless because we're thinking about things and we need to be able to relax. That's where herbs come in. And on a rare thing, I'll actually use some notes today in just a second. I have a list to make sure I don't leave anything off of it. But what I want to start out with is a couple things on herbs and beginning this journey if you're new new to it. Number one, one of the most valuable things you can do so that you can research an herb and understand what the hell the person writing about it or speaking about it is talking about is to learn the basic herbal actions. There's actually more than 40, but there's 40 primary herbal actions. I broke this down into four almost hour-long podcasts, because if I say something is a hepatic, and you don't know what that means, I just might as well have said, this herb is a boobly googly goo, right? It doesn't really help you at all. So learning those would be a good idea. The other thing that I really recommend is there's a book called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook. If I could have one single book, just one single book on herbology, it would be this book. I'll put links to that resource of the 40 herbal actions and the book in the uh, notes of the video today, so you can look that up. If you're listening to the podcast, just go to Miyagi Mornings Recap Episode 3, and there will be links to all the videos from this podcast in there. Remember, I make these so you can share them with people that are not quite ready for an hour to 90 minutes of content And so they can learn about individual subjects in a quick, easy way. So let's kick off the list. This came from a question. Remember, you can submit your questions by sending them to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. And uh, sooner or later, you'll get on an episode if you do that. This one said, hey, I got these aloe vera plants. And I started thinking about it. When we get cuts and scrapes and burns, we put a little bit of aloe vera gel on it and in the winter, we just bring them in the house. Are there other herbs that we should be growing that maybe we can bring in the house over winter or don't have to or what have you? And I'm going to answer the spirit of that question, but I'm not really going to answer from the standpoint of herbs that you need to bring in your house. See, I think that if you learn the stuff I talked about in the beginning here, like how to actually use herbs, and you learn how to make salves and tinctures and stuff like that, the time where you don't have some of these herbs fresh and available, you have them in tincture and balm and other forms and dried out and what have you. So I think we need to be a lot more like our ancestors, and they didn't really have heated and cooled apartments with lights and all. So 
while I'm all for indoor growing, and growing herbs indoors is a great thing, and I'm not saying not to, we also should have the ability to not need to do that. So the aloe, I left it on my list because it is my favorite of all medicinal plants for the beginner. Because you don't need to know nothing. You break open a leaf, you throw some of that gooey gel on a burn or a cut, and it helps. And it does a lot of other really great things. By the way, I'm not going to go deep into these because this would be a whole podcast an hour and a half long if I did so. And that would, you know, get away from me all mornings. So that one I think is totally worth bringing indoors. My next but most favorite herb, and these are not in any particular order, is dandelion. Dandelion does so many things, and it can be used as the flower, as the leaf, or the root for different uses and in different ways. It's actually a great salad green. It actually helps with liver and kidney function, among other things. You can look it up for yourself, but the beauty of dandelion is, for most people, you don't need to grow it. It grows all by itself, so stop killing the dandelions. They may actually someday help make your life better, if not actually save it. I don't know that maybe dandelion will save your life, but it can make your life better. So don't kill things that make your life better just because your neighbors don't like yellow flowers. Then they go plant marigolds that are yellow. Okay, uh, so dandelion is one of my favorites. You know what's going to come, and a lot of you are thinking he's probably going to save it to the end if you guys know me and been following me a while, but comfrey. Comfrey is the medicinal herb that I believe every human on the planet should be growing in their backyard because it will grow in almost every backyard. The root and the leaves can both be used medicinally. It can be used as fodder for livestock. You can use it to make fertilizer for your garden, and there's nothing out there, in my opinion, that minor scrapes, abrasions, etc., bruises and injuries like that, that comfrey is not one of the best things to use for. And uh, I use it mostly either as a straight herbal leaf or I use it as a salve. Those are my two favorite ways to use it. You can learn how to make salves. It's not hard. If you can make soup, you can make a salve. It's that easy. Uh, one really great use for comfrey, though, you got to be quick and you got to have it freshly available to do this. If you get bit by fire ants, and I mean immediately, before they break out, you crumble up a leaf and rub it all over it. Most of those ant bites will not break out into those nasty breakouts. It will neutralize the formic acid and help treat the wound. Next up, calendula. Calendula growing right there. You notice I got the deer hunting coat on today? That's because it's actually freaking cold today. All right? And my calendula just survived temperatures of 26 degrees, and it's still growing and doing well. You don't have to bring it inside. It will handle... Immediate to moderate frost once it's established. That plant is almost a year old at this point. Well, no, eight months old at this point, right? So calendula does all the great things that comfrey does. Some of them not as well, some of them a little bit better. Really good for the skin, really good for making the skin stronger, really good at helping to heal wounds, really good at helping to pull nasty stuff out of wounds, and it's flipping beautiful. Kind of hard to see there. Next up today, plantain. Plantain is what made me an herbalist as a child. I remember my grandfather slivered a piece of his finger off, went out in the garden. He didn't do it out on purpose. He had an accident. Went out in the garden, took some plantain leaves, wrapped it around his finger, put a bandage over it, and in two days it looked like it was almost completely healed. And I was like, my grandfather's a sorcerer. He can heal things with leaves. Plantain is that awesome. It also does a lot of other great things. And it's another one of those things people call a weed. It can make your life better. Stop killing the plantain. I'm trying to grow it, and I can get narrow-leaf plantain to grow on my property, but I have not yet gotten broad-leaf plantain, which is crazy since it tends to grow in sidewalk cracks. But we're still working on that one. Uh, next up, garlic. Most herbalists, if you said you can only have one herb to work with, they would choose garlic. Garlic is a master's herb. Because it is so simplistic, yet it can be used in so many different ways. I can't go into all the ways it can be used or all the things it does right now. But I will tell you this. When you buy garlic and you take all those big cloves off the out and you end up with those little fiddly cloves, you can stick them in your aquaponics, hydroponics, etc. systems and grow them like chives. They're good that way. Or you can stick them in those systems so they root just a little bit and then throw them in your garden and make more garlic. You can literally use store-bought garlic to make more garlic forever. And you take all the little fiddly ones and stick them in there. They're not genetic on the size of the cloves. It has to do with how the bulb formed. So there's no reason not to put it everywhere. And in addition to all the medicinal things it does, by planting it in your garden, you'll minimize pests. And even now, it's not too late in most of the country to be dropping those garlic cloves into the soil. Some of y'all, it is. You know who you are. Everybody else, if it's not frozen, you can stick garlic cloves in the soil. The next one, ginger. You can't grow ginger, fool. That's a tropical plant. 
You can grow ginger. I have it growing right over there right now. Now, the top just died back. If it gets much colder, the roots or the rhizomes that are in the soil will get nuked. But in most of the country, you have plenty of time to grow ginger every year. And this is another one of those plants that's probably worth having a great big container growing it. And you can take the container in the house. It also does great in aquaponics systems. Check out Rob Bob's channel on YouTube to see all about growing ginger in aquaponics. Next up today, lemon balm. Lemon balm to me is a great herb because it's very soothing. It tastes great. It smells great. And it repels insects. You can literally pick up some lemon balm, rub it all over your hands and face, Kind of smell lemony, but mosquitoes won't want to eat you quite as much. It's also a very sedative herb. There's another one of those herbal actions, but that one's easy to figure out, meaning it's a good herb for teas to help you relax at night. And I will throw all mints, which Lemon Balm is a member of the mint family, into that category, including peppermint, spearmint, bee balm. If it's a mint, it belongs in your garden. Next, wild lettuce, one you don't have to grow. It pretty much grows wild throughout most of the country. That's why they call it wild lettuce. What can you do with wild lettuce? Get this, guys. I'm not going to go into how, but by using the extract, you can make something akin to opium for pain relief using wild lettuce. Google it and learn more. Use caution with it, but you really have to go out of your way to be stupid for it to be dangerous. And next and last but not least, chamomile. Chamomile is one. I just think it looks pretty. It brings in a lot of pollinators, and it makes that great tea. I use it in my Three Flowers Blend Mead along with uh, Heather and Elderflower. Um, but it is another one of those ones that's just great. And much like lemon balm and other mints, chamomile has this weird ability. If you have a nice, refreshing tea in the morning when you need to be waking up, it kind of helps you wake up in a good mood. And if you need to go down and sleep, it kind of helps you sleep. It seems to adjust to what you need when you need it. Rather than being a stimulant or a depressant, more of those actions, it's actually something that works with you. What herbal action is that? Well, if you listen to my podcast on herbal actions, maybe you'll find out. Anyway, those are my 10 herbs that I think everybody should be growing and using and harvesting from their own backyards. There are many more. If I left your favorite one out, it's not because I'm an herbalist that is herbal racist. I don't know, or herbal species. It's just, I can only fit 10 in. I went over 10 minutes. It's too long for Miyagi mornings. I'll be back tomorrow. We'll keep tomorrow's a little bit shorter. It's too damn cold out here to be going over time. Remember, if you want to submit a question for me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Miyagi mornings in the subject line. Ask that question in a single sentence, then give me details if you need to, and we will catch up with you tomorrow with episode 13. Hey guys, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 13. It's Fox the Cat joining us. You can't see him, but he's behind the camera. Let's, let's say hello to Fox the Cat. Those of you on the podcast can't see him, but those of you in the video world, Fox the Cat. He's the outdoor cat. Does a lot of good things around here, controlling the rodent population. Anyway, Fox, off you go, mate. Anyway, so what are we going to talk about today? I got an email uh, question for Miyagi Mornings. And it was really more, it was a Reddit thread about stocking your pantry and all the things that you should put in your pantry, and maybe that'd be a good subject for this. Even though I've talked about it extensively on the podcast, again, these are short segments for people that don't have the time or are not quite ready yet to invest an hour to an hour and a half a day into a podcast on preparedness, self-efficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. Of course, that's called the Survival Podcast. You can find it where? TSPC.co. I want you to get tired typing out the big domain, so we've got a short one for you. Anyway, um... I think this is a great topic, especially as we round out 2020, because a lot of people who thought preppers were crazy about March and April went, well, maybe they're not. And then those people, and I don't want to insult anybody here. I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way if this is you. But a lot of those people got into high reaction mode. And when they thought that all the supplies were going to dry up, they ran out and hoarded toilet paper and stuff like that. But they also hoarded a lot of other things. Uh, dry goods, pasta, beans. I mean, I saw all... The, like, you go to the store anytime right now or before this all started, and dry beans are just... You can't give them away. But all of a sudden, everybody's buying giant bags of rice, giant bags of beans, giant bags of flour. I had people emailing me, how do I get raw wheat, you know, like just going crazy for it. By the way, all my peeps that listen to me knew you could get all the raw wheat or raw barley or anything like that you wanted to make flour out of from home brew stores. They were never short on 50-pound bags of that stuff at all. There's all Or feed stores, you know, the, 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 the wheat that you use is the same wheat we use in feed stores. So there was all these ways to get this stuff. But people panicked and they went into irrational reaction mode. And 
This is what I want you to understand today. People know action-reaction, and that's one way things happen. But proper action prevents improper reaction. And this is what we've tried to teach as preppers for a long time. And a big part of what fueled the excessive and improper overreaction of the public and wiped out these dry goods stores and things like that is people did what's in this Reddit thread. They got a list of things they should get, freaked out and ran out and bought that stuff with no idea, most of them, how to use it, why they were buying it or whatever. Just, you know, the zombies might be coming along with COVID and we better make sure we have a bunch of stuff. This is why, well, after doing this now, I'm in my 13th year. It'll be 13 years total this summer coming up in the new year. Hopefully the new year will be better than the existing one. Um, I have said I will not give you a shopping list. You have to make your own shopping list, and anybody that gives you a shopping list is a moron. Uh, whether they know it or not, they are because they can't know what your shopping list should be. Imagine, let's just take prepping out for a second, right? And you said, Jack, I'm going grocery shopping next week. What should I buy? Or I said that to you. I said, you know, Bill, Tom, whatever your name is, I'm going grocery shopping next week. What should I buy? You'd be like, Jack's an idiot. How do I know what he's supposed to buy? I don't know what he eats. I don't know what he likes. So this is where it comes to stocking your pantry. And before I go into how to do this, there is a place for, like, dry goods, bulk stores, and stuff like that. I don't really eat a lot of rice and beans and things that are high in carbohydrates, but they are the best long-term survival foods out there. So if you want kind of a base of if everything else fails, this is where I'm going. A couple five-gallon buckets of rice, a couple five-gallon buckets of dried beans, or lentils would be even better because they're easier to cook, and a couple five-gallon buckets of something like uh, shell corn, a couple five-gallon buckets of a grain like wheat or barley. Great. Put them in a five-gallon bucket. Take a hand warmer, just like you get from the store this time of year for going hunting. Little ones in a bag, you rip them open. They're a giant oxygen absorber. Throw your stuff in the bag, throw that in there, put the lid on it. That lid ain't coming off until you cut it off, by the way, after you do that. Stick them back in the basement somewhere to last 25 years, and it's there and done. But that's not your day-to-day storage. That's not practicing what we teach, which is very simple. Eat what you store, store what you eat. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to get a stack of paper, a cheap notebook, something you can write on, and we're going to have this be a food diary. This is how we're going to figure out what we should be storing. And for the next two weeks... Put that thing on your countertop and make a rule in the house as long as the kids are old enough to write. If they eat something, write it down and make a deal with them. If you sneak something, I need to know it. And for the next two weeks, even if you sneak something, I might say something about it, but you won't be in any trouble. You need honesty here. What gets used? Now, after about two weeks of doing that, go through that list. And every single thing that's storable without refrigeration, put a star next to it and tell your folks... Now that we have a base list, every single thing that you use, put a check mark next to it if it's already written down and only add to the list if it's something you haven't already put on the list. Do that for about a month. You'll have a great list of things. You'll have things that you know you use frequently, and you'll have things that you know you use frequently that store well. Then start practicing copy canning or copy boxing or whatever it is. If it's something that stores well, that doesn't need refrigeration, when you go to the store, don't buy 20 of them. This time when you were going to buy one, buy two, maybe three. And then stack them in your pantry exactly the way you do at the grocery store. The the oldest items in the front, newest items in the back. Keep doing that until you have a deep pantry for a couple items. Then pick another two items. Do it again. Then pick, And over a few months, you end up with a well-stocked, organized, deep pantry where the new items come out the front and the the, the old items go out the front and the new items go in the back. And then... If you do that, you'll probably find pretty quick you can get by for a month or two without going to the grocery store. Maybe not having all the things you want, but you'll be okay. And then when a problem comes up, you'll go out and selectively buy the things that you need instead of panicking buying shit you don't know anything, any idea at all what to do with. Then you need to start looking at, or concurrently, you kind of need to start looking at what are the things that I use a lot of that don't store without refrigeration or freezing. And the ones that store with freezing are the ones you also want to start copy buying. Get yourself, it's a little easier now than it was a couple months ago, and you should have done it long ago, a good stand-up chest freezer. The ones that you open up and they go down in like a normal chest freezer, yeah, they're more efficient, you can fit more shit in them. But you know what happens? Stuff ends up in the bottom, it never gets used, and it gets freezer burnt. Ask me how I know. Stand-up ones are much easier to organize, and start doing the same thing with your meats and things that need to be frozen. Start organizing it. 
pork on this shelf, chicken on this shelf, beef on this shelf, that type of thing, stuff in the back. My older episode that I did last week, a generator, get a generator capable of running your refrigerator and your backup freezer, put some gas aside, and you're ready to go for easy two months. If you can make it through too much of shortage and still get little bits of what you need, you can get through 90 to 120 days that way in complete and total comfort. And when everybody freaks out about the next disaster, and there will be one, there's panic buying in Washington and Oregon right now because your damn governors are locking people down again. That's not a reason to panic buy, but people are doing it anyway. And once it starts, it it's competitive. It gets like, oh, my, I better do it too. Oh, my, I better do it too. Take these steps now. Make your own dang list. No, you wouldn't ask anybody else what to buy at the grocery store. Why would you ask anybody else what to prepare to do without for? Put up that which you consume. You'll never waste it. Three years from now, you won't be put in a homeless box hoping they don't notice that it's long since expired. Rotate your food. Eat what you store. Store what you eat. Take those carbohydrates that store long term. Put them in buckets or vaults or whatever. Stick them way in the back in case they're needed for emergency and otherwise... Go on with your life, folks. This isn't hard. We've been teaching this type of philosophy for a long time. You want to know more, check out the podcast. There's over 2,700 episodes there. You can find it at tspc.co. Hey, folks, and welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode, what is it, 14? Yeah, 14. And you'll notice there's not a Miyagi pond beyond, behind me, and I am in my office, and there's a reason for that. It is cold outside, but it's not that cold. It's... Um, it's a time constraints issue. If this is going to happen today, it's going to happen to happen this way. Uh, I'm way behind. Nicole Sauce is going to be on the Survival Podcast today talking about crowdfunding and doing it independently instead of through a third party like Kickstarter. And so that's what we'll be doing on the show today. Uh, I just had a long conversation with Drake Cotta from the Pirate Chain Project, and uh, that took up some time. So, And i got I got to edit all the stuff from the Unloose to Goose episode last night. So I'm just behind, and so I need to uh, to do it this way. So that's why we're sitting here at the desk instead of out by the Miyagi Pond with the fish and the ducks and the chickens. So what I wanted to talk to you today about, and I'm going to try to do this, keeping my commitment to you to not make Miyagi mornings political, uh, but it's liberty. I've got a lot of questions. I asked for questions to be sent in for Miyagi Mornings, either in the comments here uh, on online or through email is best. And um, I get a lot of questions about liberty one way or another. And big thing is, how do we take back our liberties? How do we understand the liberties we've lost? Those are the kind of two common threads. So this is what you need to understand about liberty. And this is why I don't do politics. You can't vote for liberty. I know you'd like to, and I know you'd like to believe to, that you can. You can't. You can't ask for liberty. You can't beg for liberty. You can't expect liberty to be handed to you by people who have power over you. Liberty comes from one source, and I know some of you are religious, so you'll say it's the Almighty or whatever. No. If you want to believe that your right to liberty comes from your creation, I agree with you. But God can't grant you liberty. Whatever your view of God is, God granted you what you have in front of you. God created all that is, including you, and now you're here. You want liberty? You have to take it. Liberty is claimed through action, not through words. Flowery words about liberty can inspire others to possibly take those actions, but they cannot grant liberty. Reading a document that says you have a liberty means absolutely nothing. You can understand it perfectly. You can be absolutely correct in your interpretation of a document that describes the liberty that you have, and your liberty does not come from that document. And it is not actually protected by that document in any way unless you're willing to exercise the liberty. And that will require risk. There's a guy in New York right now, he was just arrested because he decided, I'm not shutting my business down. So they pulled his liquor license. So he said, fine, I won't sell liquor. He opened his bar, he had select people in, he gave them free alcohol. They arrested him and fined him $50,000. 1,500 people showed up in the streets to protest it after he got out of jail. They arrested and fined his lawyer for being there to represent his client. And you know what his lawyer said? Go for it. Now, I'm not saying everybody should take a stand in that exact way. In fact, I don't think we should. I think if everybody takes the same stand, it's very easy for the state then to deal with that stand. Because you're dealing with 
a whack-a-mole game, but you're dealing with a, a game where all the moles pop up and stand for you, and you can individually whack them down the same way. What you need is us taking our liberty through being like the real whack-a-mole game, but millions of moles, right, everywhere. And that means you do what you most want to do in your life while insulating yourself through strategic planning the best way you can so that you don't get whacked. Or if you do get whacked, you're kind of already going down the hole and it's a soft whack. And then you're up over here. And then you're up over there. And then maybe once in a while they touch you with it, but they don't get the points for it. Does that make sense? How do you, how do you take back your liberty? Start by taking back your privacy. I mentioned I was on the, on the uh, phone with Drace Cotta for quite a while today, Pirate Chain. Pirate Chain has some bugs with their wallets and stuff. That's what we were talking about, how we can work that out. I'll be talking about that more in the MeRe group for cryptocurrency today. It'll only be there, by the way. Um, but, I mean, you want to you wanna force for liberty? How about privacy? Well, what do you need privacy for? How about this? If you're using Bitcoin and you tell me to send Bitcoin to your address... And you keep all your money in that address, which is dumb, but if you do, or you just happen to have a lot of money in that address, once I know that address, I can look it up on the Block Explorer and see exactly how much you're holding there. If you're a, a, a business, do you really want your customers able to do that? If you're a customer, do you really want the business you're dealing with able to do that, let alone the government? How about having a place where you can keep your money in a certain place in, like, Where do I send it to? You send it to this address. Look it up. Good luck with that. Take your privacy. Take your privacy, your right to privacy, the right to the possession of your wealth back. Cryptocurrency is one way to do that. You want the right to eat good food? Grow it and buy it from people who produce it. Well, there's laws in my area that say, I don't care. What did I say about liberty? It must be seized. Go to your neighbor that has a great big yard and does a bunch of homesteading shit and say, hey, look, have you ever thought about raising pastured poultry? Get some people in the neighborhood together. Help that person out. Instead of them going into business as a farmer, why don't you guys go into business as a cooperative that's unofficial and do business privately, either with cash or silver or crypto or whatever, and then have that one place be used to produce enough chicken for four or five families and everybody help out. If you need to hire somebody to come in and do the processing because out of all that group nobody wants to do it, fine. Collectively pool the money, pay someone to come do the processing. Now you fill your freezer with good quality meat. And who did you ask permission from? No one. And I can keep going with examples, but that's what they're all going to end in. If you're exercising a liberty, you didn't ask permission to do it. And you need to figure out how that fits and where that fits and why that fits and when that fits into your life in what way that you don't get the giant hammer coming down hard enough to kill you or lock you in prison for a very long time. That's the world we live in. If you think that's political, let me explain something to you. You don't know what the fuck liberty is, okay? If you think that's political, you have given up on liberty, you don't know what the fuck liberty is, and you think you can have liberty by asking for it. You can't. You never will. You will never have liberty as long as you're relying on somebody else to let you have it. It won't be liberty. It'll be permission. With that, I'll be back tomorrow with the uh, final episode of the week of Miyagi Mornings. Take care. Hey, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 15 as we wrap up the third week of Miyagi Mornings together. And uh, there may be some rooster crows in the background, but for those that are on the podcast versus the video, it's not because I'm outside at the Miyagi Pond where I'm supposed to be. I am in my office, and once again, I'm not hiding from the cold. It's actually beautiful outside. I don't have the time to set the camera up out there and all that today. Uh, this is a time-constraint issue like was yesterday. And today we're going to talk about starting a business. This came as a combination from a bunch of different questions that are coming in from Miyagi Mornings by email or in the comments section of the videos along with, hey, I took like three that have been asked about quite a bit lately, put them out for a vote on Telegram and MeWe, on the Telegram and MeWe uh, group and channel for the Survival Podcast, and the winner was number one, which was starting a business, which is our subject for today. So I can't, in you know five to ten minutes for a Miyagi morning segment, 
you know, examine 10 different businesses and, and go through them like I might in a podcast. I have to be far more generic in general with how do you think about discovering what you can do to earn an income independent of employment. And I want to start out with the fact that I'm going to be honest, it's not really something that everybody needs to do or it's not for everybody. There are certain things that come with running and operating a business, even a small side business, that some people just, I don't know that they, they're not cut out for, but they are, it's not going to give them pleasure. And they don't need to. Like they have enough employment or investment or whatever that they don't really need to be in a business. And if something makes you miserable, then maybe you shouldn't do it. That doesn't mean that I don't think if you're, if you're doubtful, you shouldn't test the waters and try to do something. But in trying to do something, if you end up hating it, I, I've always been a big believer in, in quitting what you hate. And I'll also say with that, just because you take a shot at a business in one direction and it doesn't work out and you don't really enjoy it, it doesn't mean that you can't find a business that you'll enjoy. You need to look at a business a lot of ways, the way that you would look at a beer or a wine. When somebody tells me, I don't, I don't like beer or I don't like wine, if they don't drink, they don't drink. But if they just, you know, I, I, I'm a drinker, but I don't like beer, um, you haven't tried enough beers or you haven't tried enough wines. You know, like I don't like this particular, you know, food category. Like let's say I don't like Asian food. You haven't tried enough. Like there is so much opportunity out there to try different things, whether it's the world of business or cuisine, that maybe you just haven't found the thing that you actually enjoy yet. So starting right out of the gate with that, the three questions that I always tell people to ask themselves to try to find a place to start, not necessarily this may not be the answer, but it is often a good one, is we start out with, what are you good at? And when we ask that question, you need to add to it or can become good at. Because a lot of stuff that you might do to earn a living or to earn income, you will probably suck at it when you do it for the first time. Because we have to learn and develop as individuals in skill sets. So if there's something that you're either good at or you feel that you can become good at, that can kind of go in a list. The next thing is, what do you love? Because that pairs right in with the first question. If you love something, you probably can get good at it. right? There's, there's very few things you can't get good at. I, I've always said I can't play a guitar, but I'll tell you why. I don't love the idea of playing a guitar enough to go through the crap to get good at it. Some people have a natural talent for playing a guitar, and they can move more quickly. But I don't believe anybody... It, it, unless you don't have the ability to somehow, because I've seen people that play blind with it in their lap like Jeff Healy did or whatever. I don't believe anybody can't play a guitar unless you physically cannot actually strum strings, right? So anybody can, but you got to love something enough to attach it to something that you want to do or feel that you can be good at enough to become good at it. So you don't necessarily have to love something, but I really would stray you away from building a business on something you definitely hate. right? And a lot of people hate their jobs. So why would you replace a job you hate with a business you hate? So just because you're good at something at your job and it earns income doesn't necessarily mean it makes a good thing for you to do as a business. Do you hate it because you're working for somebody else and you don't like the structure, or do you hate it because you don't like the thing? I have a, a friend whose first wife uh, went through all the crap to become an architect, get licensed, everything, and she designs closets today because she hated being an architect. So think about that. And then the last thing is, what value can you produce? So if we can find something we're good at or can become good at, we at least like and hopefully love, then all we got to do is figure out how do we make that into a value that we can provide to other people. And then if we market that value effectively, we should be able to end up with some level of, of an enterprise. And I know that sounds oversimplified, but it's really where you have to start because I don't know what you should do. Just like I told you this week, I, I can't tell you what to, uh, to put in your pantry because I don't know what you eat. I don't know what you're good at. I don't know what you love, and I don't know what value you offer. You have to discover that for yourself. Next, you really should be asking yourself going into this, with the, the permaculture principle designed with the end in mind, do I want a full-time business? Do I want a side hustle? Or do I want kind of a portfolio of hustles that maybe create a full-time income, but none of them are full-time enterprises? 
And you may change your mind about that, but it's not a bad idea to have that discussion with yourself. I often say, self, what should I do? Like that type of real discussion, that real individual examination, what do I really want out of this? And it may be the case that you're going to start out with a side hustle, but whether you want that side hustle to become a full-time business, a portfolio of side hustles, or just a side hustle, those change everything about how you're going to approach what you're going to do. Because one of the things that you're going to need to do is you're going to need to do the mathematics. So if you decide, I'm going to go into this business, I'm going to start it as a side hustle, but I want to work it to a full-time income, one needs to put together something like a spreadsheet or at least a back-of-the-napkin calculation and say, well, based on some assumptions, some guesses about how much profit there is per unit of this thing, how many units of this thing must I produce to earn enough money to earn a living to fill my budget to where I don't need to go over here and work a J-O-B anymore? And, and often you may find, hey, I can make some money at this. This can be fun. This can be a hobby that produces some income and beyond paying for itself, and that's great. But the scale necessary will never work with me as the person. Then you have to decide, okay, since it won't work, if I'm the only one doing it, do I want to have employees? Do I want to build a large business? You see what I'm saying? Because I've, I've had people say, well, I'm going I'm to do what you did when you used to do commercial duck eggs. Okay, fine. Do you know how many ducks it takes to make, an, you know, what do you make, in, and they have an income of 50 grand in their job, and, you know, there's some things in there like employee-provided health care and shit where they don't realize their job's worth about 80 grand a year in real money. Okay, so do you know how many ducks it takes to make 80 grand? I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying that, like, if you do that math, you may realize, like, that never leads, at least by itself, to what you're looking for. So maybe even if you like playing around with ducks, this is a place to make some pocket money while you figure out something else to do. It's not a place to try to stake your fortune. And you need to do that mathematics to figure that out. Next up, you need to ask yourself also, do I want a public-facing business? And I don't mean a public, like, traded business, like a giant corporation or something. I just mean, like, do you want your business to be, you know, quote-unquote, above board? so that you have a sign out in your front yard, you know, Bill's Widgets or Bill's Widget Service. You know, and you're advertising in the mainstream world and you're taking dollars and, and, and you're running a, a PayPal account and a credit card account and stuff like that and making bank deposits and what have you. Do you want that? And a lot of people, that is a good business to be in because it takes us into the world of tax strategy that we won't get into today. Or do you want cash money, crypto money, agorist business or do you want some sort of a hybrid there a lot of side hustles bro I'm telling you a lot of the side hustles cash money at the gate the way we did the duck eggs and we sold the restaurants and that all was on the books see how that works can't explain further than that before you got to work that out for yourself yeah all right so the person that just has a small, and I, I'm not suggesting you go in the egg business, just saying a small flock of some sort of egg-laying bird that has people come by their place and pick up eggs, put some cash in their pocket, would probably be best to just let that between the person that gave them the money, the duck or the chicken, uh, yourself, and the gate post where you met to exchange dollars for eggs. Now, you got to figure out, do I really want to try to build an income, though, enough to support my life, on something like that, or do I want to have an above-board business, or do you want to be like the guy that I've mentioned before from Pennsylvania that had an ice cream shop, okay, and he sold a bunch of ice cream, but he sold a bunch of other stuff, and you can work it out from there. you got to figure that out for yourself. And then I do want to say that I came at this from an approach of you got to figure it out for yourself, and I didn't want to like give you 20 ideas for a business or something like that. There's value in that, though, because it often leads you to, well, I can do that. Or uh, that idea gives me another idea. So when I was young and trying to figure out what I want to do with myself, I bought magazines like 50 businesses you can start this year and all. And guess how many of the businesses I started? None. Not a single one that was suggested. None of them said podcaster and YouTube creator because, well, that was so far long ago. There wasn't no YouTube yet and there wasn't a podcast yet. But you see, none of them were content creation, producing audio. None of them were what I actually ended up doing. But there is value in that because it turns that mental computer on. You're, you're basically putting a, a problem in your head. How do I figure out what I can do to produce value? And you start analyzing things and no, 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 no. No leads to, well, now how do I find a yes? 
So an example of that would be like my buddy John Dowie, who listens to Survival Podcast. Years ago, we had a guest on, talked about a microgreen business. He's like, I can do that shit. And he went out and built a microgreen business. And he survived the slaughter of 2020 by going from selling to restaurants to selling to people directly. So that's a business you can still do. Does that mean you should do it? Not necessarily, but it's not a terrible idea. And last but not least, and this one went longer than I wanted, but you know, when you get into entrepreneurship, it's complicated. No one cares work harder. I'm wearing a shirt. Those of you on the podcast can't see it. This came from John Willis. This is my favorite shirt John Willis ever sent me. You guys see a lot of SOE Tactical Gear shirts on me. This is I went and changed into this shirt to do this video just because I love it so much, and it fits this. The thing you must understand if you're going to go into being an entrepreneur, this is everything. No one gives two shits about how passionate you are or how good you are or whatever. When it comes down to it, you now must figure out why something's working and do more of that or why something's not working and change it, and you must work harder. And work harder does not always equal results. But when you figure it out, working harder equals results. Miyagi Mornings is something that I started doing after my fall workshop. When we talked about what the workshop gave us, At that workshop, I stood up first and I said, I need to work harder. Me, the guy that's been killing myself for 12 years. I needed, and it wasn't so much work harder, I needed to do more. And since then, not just Miyagi Mornings, I've been producing more. I have seen a direct result. I have worked harder and more money has come into my bank account. You can work harder in a job and that doesn't necessarily happen. Maybe you can get some overtime or whatever, but unless you're in some sort of incentive-based compensation, you can work harder than the guy next to you and make the same money. The big reason to do this, when you work harder, you get the rewards. The, the, the negative is sometimes hard work does not equal reward if it's the wrong work. If there's a fly sitting in your window still, he can work as hard as he wants trying to go through that window and what's going to happen? Dead fly. There you go. That's the truth, but don't let it demotivate you. What are you good at? What do you love? What value can you add to it? Crack that code and you will be on your way to building an enterprise of your own. With that, we've wrapped up another week of Miyagi Mornings. I will be back with you on Monday. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.